Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Excuse me, may I have some more? We are the Foodcast with an Insatiable Appetite. I am Brad Kramer. I am joined by my always bubbly co-host, Christine. Um, hi, Christine. Hi, I'm extra bubbly because I have bubbles in my glass. Already? It was, so as we are recording this, it's three in the afternoon, and I'm assuming those bubbles aren't from like Sprite or Dr. Pepper. No, it's it's from um, bubbly sparkling water, but you can assume something else. Okay, so you're 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 being good at least until five o'clock. Of course, it, it you know it it was a long weekend, so you got to hydrate. And, and so that's the perfect uh, segue because my initial question for you, or the the topic I wanted to talk about, you as a swim mom spent your weekend at yet another swim meet with your boys, and that took place in the Orlando vicinity where there is a brand new location of Portillo's, um, the legendary Chicago restaurant that um, Joel McHale raved about with you and um, whose product he is a hot dog. He had uh, the chefs on fast foodies recreate in an episode famous for Jeremy Ford's inability to say Portillo's. Um, I have had it in Scottsdale, Arizona. You now have it in Orlando within a stone's throw of you. And your boy's reward for a good weekend of swimming and a successful weekend of swimming was cake shakes from Portillo's. So for people who don't have Portillo's or people that are reminiscing about uh, having had it and wanting it again soon, why the cake shakes? Why was that the 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 reward the treat well well it was twofold uh before talking about why the children love a cake shake uh being that we're we used to live in chicago and you can only get until this recent opening we could only get portillo's by having taste of chicago mail us italian beef and the really good hot dogs um and jardinere you know, the, it was kind of a little bit of a taste of home for us. Um, and my husband really loves going there because he says that that was his last official meal as a single man. Um, cause the day we got married, his m- final meal before the wedding ceremony was the Italian beef, Italian sausage combo, mm. which is for super healthy. Um, so, you know, special place in our heart for Portillo's. But the children love the cake shake because what they do 
Um, normally it's the chocolate cake shake, which is you take a milkshake and then you take the absolutely fabulous Portillo's chocolate cake, which is made with mayonnaise to make it moist. Um, and you blend them together. So some sips of your milkshake have a lot of chocolate cake in them. Some have more ice cream, but it's like this perfectly blended combo of cake and ice cream together. And, um, you know, it, it, it's a very special occasion treat because the small cake shake, which, you know, I, I don't know exactly how many ounces it is, but, you know, a small size cup, um, is about a thousand calories. And the large one, I think is over 1500 calories. Wow. So, um, you know, it's a meal, it's, in one treat, it's basically your day's worth of calories. Uh, this time around, my younger son chose to get the new one, which is a lemon cake shake because they had lemon cake. Mm. And he was quite happy with that because that's you know, nice and refreshing on a hot Florida day. I'd be down for that. I love lemon cake. That, you know, I did not have that one. I had the the chocolate one because that was my reward instead of getting a beer. Um, shocking, I know, but <laughs> but but it it looked really good. And and the lemon cake, I think, is a really nice idea. Like especially when you're having a whole lot of you know Italian beef and jardinera can be a little heavy. So having that option of something bright and light is a nice contrast. But I I will honestly say that. Portello's opened in Orlando recently, you know, with, within a month and the lines were really long. The funniest part uh, in which I did not realize until we drove up to the building is they share a parking lot with white castle. And it's the first time they opened a white castle in Orlando too. The wait time for some people at white castle was three hours in the drive-thru. That's unbelievable. Ironically, I mentioned that, you know, Portillo's and Scottsdale's where I experienced it. Um, they opened a 24 hour White Castle in Scottsdale sometime in the last year, year and a half. And it was the same thing. They had three hour lines and then they had to close like five in the morning because they'd run out of food and run out of supply. So it was it was the same dynamic, which I I haven't had White Castle in a few years, but I've had White Castle. Um, that is not food that warrants a three-hour wait. No, no. I, I mean, yes, we can all. And maybe some people have watched on the History Channel the the you know history of food and have been fascinated by that story of why White Castle has done certain things, and and we can all appreciate that, but. White Castle to me was always the thing the guys got at midnight or one in the morning when they were really drunk and they thought it was a good decision, but then it just never is. <laughs> so as we record this episode, we are heading to the end of June, which means summer camp is kicking into full gear around the country. Um, having grown up in the Midwest, I went to summer camp uh, July and August because school didn't get out until the middle of June. And that's still the case where some of the kids in the Northeast and the Midwest are just now getting out of school or recently getting out of school and heading to camp. Um, the first interview in this episode, you chatted with Andy Grammer, who has been 
um, working with Quaker Chewy Granola Bars and promoting a Quaker Chewy Camp Track where people were um, asked to submit their own lyrics and he would create a song from the uh, camp song with the lyrics that people submitted. So um, with that in mind, and, and before we get to the end of the interview, do you have summer camp memories or summer camp memories that tie into food in, in that still either bring you happy memories today or bad memories today? You know, I, I'm, probably one of the few people I never went to summer camp. I, when I was young, I trained, uh, I was a tennis player. So I was always going to, um, tournaments and practicing and all of that, but it wasn't technically a summer camp like other people would do for fun. Right. So I kind of like my boys are swimmers where they train during the day and then you do, summer school or extra classwork um when you're off that was kind of my life all summer long i never really had the camp experience i did send my youngest to camp once and like sleepaway camp and his biggest claim to fame was um he flooded the dorm room <laughs> we still never let him live that down that he left the sink on and <laughs> it became a whole thing <laughs> is that why he has didn't go back a second time uh yeah yeah there you go i went to i growing up uh, part of my childhood in suburban detroit i went to sleepaway camp in upstate michigan in charlevoix michigan not far from mackinac island site of the world's greatest fudge among other things um and my only food memory from summer camp was the big giant dining hall and specifically almost every meal this little those little wooden plastic bowls that used to be so prevalent um, filled with little round buttered potatoes out of like a Cisco can. So they would get uh, steel drum sized cans of food and open them up and serve in these buttered potatoes. And my memory is summer camp boiled potatoes and feeling like I, I was sent to summer camp in the gulag. <laughs> in the gulag. I was not expecting to hear that word today. I really so, wasn't. Like, when your only when your only memory of food at summer camp are little boiled potatoes, it, it's I don't know. The, apparently, this was post famine. Um, so now that now that I've shared my memories of boiled potatoes, which I'm still quite fond of, by the way, um, let's listen to I, Andy Grammer was. He's got some energy, and if only we can inject some of that energy in you when you do these podcasts. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm not, I'm not super exciting and thrilling. Maybe I should do this like three sheets to the wind. I don't know. Maybe it'd make it better. We're going to have to try that. We're going to have to try an, a post 5 PM recording where you've already gotten into your, uh, your daily stash. Um, that, turn it into a drinking game. Maybe I'm better at that. There you go. All right. So let's listen to your conversation with Andy Grammer. Good morning, Andy. Thanks for uh, chatting with me today. I appreciate it. Good morning, Christine. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. Good. So I, I know we're talking a little bit about uh, summer camp today. And when I think of summer camp, it's kind of like this rite of passage or, you know, a ritual that kids kind of look forward to when they hit kind of a certain age. 
Do you have like certain um, memories of going to summer camp or why do you think that summer camp is so important for kids? I would say that it's one of the it's one of the times where you are playing with like like school, but a little bit more. You're left like there's more time to just be with your friends. Like it's less intense about like learning and more important about like, let's go play together. <laughs> like have a good time together for a while, you know? And I think that, you know, and then as you get older, like I remember going, it was like sleepaway, the first sleepaway camp was like really cool and special. So I think you're right. It's like a rite of passage and coming into yourself. Well, you know, when I first sent my kids away to summer camp, a sleepaway camp when they were younger, one of the things that they looked forward to was the care package from home. So do oh, you yeah. think that, you know, what, what do you think should be in like a care package? Is it a favorite food, something fun? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it's so funny to think about it when you're young. It's like you're going away for a week, but you're still like, oh, man, I've been away for a while. I'm going to need my care pack. That's fantastic. I remember that. That's great. I think it was like probably, what did my parents send me? Like, you know, anything, baked goods, things, just things you miss, you know. Well, you know, we think about a lot of times with summer, It, like you said, there's fun and there's nostalgia and there's certain things that kind of make us happy. Um, and are there certain like summer foods that you think about that you, you know, just bring smiles or things that you like sharing with your daughters during, you know, when it's hot outside and we all want to have some fun? Yes. You know, it's funny during quarantine when we weren't, there wasn't a lot of places to go. I got back into like, I have a, a fire pit in my yard and we would sit around and teaching her how to do s'mores was like really funny. She had no idea what that was. And it was just, you know, just like roasting marshmallows, just simple was really, really, really fun for her. So I think that's like very on, on topic here. Like you got to do the s'mores and the graham crackers. Of course. And, and, and I know that you're working with Quaker on something, um, with, with the summer camp idea. Do you think maybe we could take some, you know, granola bars and twist that for instead of a graham cracker and make a new s'more? I'm pretty sure they have a, they have a flavor of it. I, I'm, I, I can't be, don't hold me to that, but I'm pretty sure they have like a s'mores Quaker chewy bar. It's pretty tasty. And and since you are a parent and I'm one too, I remember when my kids were young, there were times when um, to get them to eat maybe some of the food that we didn't, they didn't particularly care for. We had to turn yes. it into a game or we had to turn yes. it into a song. Or do you happen to do that in your household since you are very musical? Yes, all the time. Uh, it's, it's like, if you can get it to be fun, then then you can move it forward. So, but we have a lot of like vegetable songs in my house, and we have uh, what is those like? You gotta eat. Yeah, I'm I'm always just like making it up on the spot, kind of fun. And if my daughter like thinks it's fun, then she'll sing with me and then take a bite. Anyone who has a kid knows that it, like it's hard to get bites into your kid, so you have to make it fun for sure. Well, and, and when I think about it, kids generally have this desire just to kind of be free with their creativity and speak whatever's on their mind. Does yeah. being a girl dad kind of help you when it comes to writing some songs and, and just being a little more willing to be creative? Um, yeah, I mean, what I love about being a girl dad and songwriting is that you're you're still writing to, you know, like the most basic form of songwriting is like a love song but usually it's it's straight across to your wife or your girlfriend or whatever like that's the of the section of like what songs are about that's probably one of the bigger ones 
And to write love songs like angled down to your little girl makes it like really interesting and sweet. So I have a bunch of those. I've also tried up to my mom, which is really great as well. But either of those up or down makes it like a little bit what you're not used to. And it has a special kind of a flair to it. Well, and when, when you think about a song like that, it it does, um, are there certain parts of it that kind of resonate that, you know, make them universal to everybody? Yeah. I mean, I think it's an underwritten about experience in my opinion. And I, I really like, you know, on my records to do that. My daughter's old enough now. She's when I take her to her little preschool, that she wants to hear the songs that are about her and why. And it's really interesting. And we sit in the car and she goes like, oh, play this one. Is this about me or about mama? And like, let's talk about it. Let's figure it out. And that's been really sweet. And, and, and now as your daughters get older, do you find ways to kind of like foster their own creativity? Does it go back to like them seeing you do it? Or do you take any opportunity within your household just to say, whether it's a song or painting or playing with food in the kitchen, just to kind of, Hey, be free and have fun. Yeah, totally. We, we really try to foster it as much as we can. You know, that was one of the things that really drew me to, to this whole campaign. There was the mixture of, we need to get kids back playing together because they haven't been able to play for a while. Um, and also that I would get to write this song with everyone on the internet who submits lyrics. And then specifically with my daughter, we're going to compile all these lyrics and the two of us together are going to write a song, which is like so sweet. Um, and we do that all day long anyway, but to do it for something uh, like this is really, really fun. Does that idea sound a little daunting though, knowing that you're going to be getting so many different people from all walks of life contributing to the song where you're trying to, you know, get all these different perspectives into one uh, collaborative effort. I think what's not daunting about this camp is supposed to be light. Like my favorite camp songs, they're like really fun and sweet and silly. So you take what we're going to take everything that people give us and try to fit in as many as possible. Um, So, yeah, I think it's going to be really fun. So the hope is maybe that um, even if uh, we aren't going to camp this summer, because my, my children are a little older, but we could probably take the same song and, and play something or sing something similar in the backyard this year. A hundred percent. You know, it's like uh, songs have a way of just heightening how you feel like they they are uh, amplifiers of, of feelings that you have. And so I in our house, we use them for pretty much everything. If we're going to wash the dishes, go, well, let's make a song about it. Are we, we going to get in the bath? Let's like make a song about it. We're going to eat your food. Let's make it. So I think that to be able to use, to find a song, hopefully that is catchy, that is written with everybody else. That is something that everybody can use with their, with their family and their kids. That's kind of the goal. And, and is catchy important these days when, when it comes to songs? Cause I, I know my taste in music versus my, Boys taste in music, music, granted they're teenagers is vastly, <clears throat> excuse me, vastly different from each other. But it, exactly. are, are there certain things that just kind of apply to everybody? I don't think, I think catchy is very, uh, important in certain situations and then like not important in other situations. You know, on my record, there's sometimes you want it to be catchy and then other times you're like, Oh, this is supposed to be vibey. I'm not trying to like make this catchy. I think when you're talking about camp songs. Yes. It's supposed to be like extremely catchy. They're supposed to be like, um, I don't know. I haven't written the song yet because I haven't seen what everybody says, but I think you're supposed to like have a lot of fun with it. It's probably like a little clapping or shouting or things that are supposed to occur in there. And it's supposed to like not leave your head, I think. 
And then lastly, before I let you go, I, I am, I'm believing that you have a new album coming out soon. Is that correct? I do have a new album coming out. I have a song. Uh, my new, my next single is coming out on the 28th of this month, which is like super exciting. Uh, so everybody look out for that. Well, thank you, Andy, for your time today. I do appreciate it. Great talking with you. Have a great day. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Mother, hello, Fada. Here I am at Camp Granada. Camp is very entertaining, and they say we'll have some fun if it stops raining. I went hiking with Joe Spivey, he developed poison ivy. You remember Leonard Skinner. He got tomain poisoning last night after dinner. This week marks the finale of Top Chef Portland. And you recently had a chance to talk to Dale Talday, who is one of the uh, all-star alumni panelists that were in the bubble for Top Chef Portland. So let's hear what he had to say about uh, judging and competing in the bubble for Top Chef Portland. So I would be remiss, and I'm not going to ask you who wins Top Chef because I'm not that stupid. But I, just out of curiosity, what do you, since this most recent Top Chef season where you're a judge um, is very different than previous ones. Um, mm-hmm. and there seemed to be a lot of camaraderie, not only between the, the chefs who are competing, but also between your own group of you know, former contestants that were serving as judges. Do you think that the atmosphere and, and the overall vibe of this season um, could continue going forward? Because we, a lot of people have been commenting, like, there's no villain this year. Everyone's happy. Everyone, like, wants to be together and all of that kind of stuff. It seems like there's a new direction. No, you know, listen, I think what, 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 Top Chef has done and what they what the brand has done, what's is fantastic is they made it just about the cooking, right? You see less about the drama and the other the other stuff. When drama happens, they make sure to show it, but they don't they focus less on it, right? Just less of like the chilling at the house, what happens at the house. It's like, hey, people will let they let other they let other TV shows be like that. They let other shows be the um, you know, let other guys be the drama, the manufactured drama, screaming and yelling and, and, and throwing <laughs> things at people and being the angry guy. This is just like, hey, let's just be, let's just make this about the food and like showcase the food and the talent of these amazing chefs. Um, I don't think they're going to replicate another Kumbaya. I don't think there's going to be another Kumbaya group like this. I think that coming out of the pandemic, everyone was just like, you know, trying to be a nice person because we had been through so much and they were just yearning for other human contact with other chefs. And it's, it was a unique, it's, you know, it was a unique experience because on top chef and other seasons, you lived with people, you lived with them total. You're a stranger living with an adult and you're living with another person living with them in a room. There might be seven or eight of you in a room. Naturally, you're going to not like people. <laughs> you know what I mean? It sounds natu- like a version natu- of summer camp. It is. And you're like, dude, you know, like, hey, man, like, 
clean up after yourself or you left, you know, you left the bathroom a mess or you're not cleaning your dishes. There's a lot of that. This season, there was none of that. So there could be a little bit, you know, they were, they had their own room. They could sep- they could, they can distance themselves from people. They had to because of COVID. So they all had their, their own rooms. We never had that in the past. You know, in the past, it was like, hey, man, this is, this is your room. This is, this is, you know, this is the room. There's a bunch of rooms. You run in and you figure out which one's yours. And if you might not even like the guy and all of a sudden you're in a room, you're like, this dude's the worst person on earth. You know, he might be a fantastic chef, but you're like, his, you know, his personality doesn't jive with mine. Right. So th- that's where I think why there won't be an ever, another season like this because of obviously the circumstances we're in with being a pandemic, but also like these people were so connected um, and they had time to like detach from each other and then have their own space. And then, you know, and then when, when they felt like they needed, you know, they could be around people, they can do that. You know what I mean? Well, we never had that. It was just like, you know, you got back to the house and then, you know, these people that you just, you know, you're just with, whether they're getting on your nerves or not, you're stuck with them. What I find interesting with uh, your conversation with Dale about Top Chef Portland and the bubble and the lack of uh, conflict and the lack of antagonistic chefs is he himself, when he has competed on the show, has encountered some conflicts of his own. So it's interesting to hear his thoughts on Top Chef Portland and why those that vibe did not exist and why he believes so strongly that they will return in future seasons. So uh, that was really a fascinating, uh, fascinating feedback that you uh, you drew out of him. No, I, I think his point's valid. I mean, if you're thrown in with complete strangers and you got to share, you know, a bed a bedroom with six other people and one minute you're competing against them and the next minute the guy, you know, the person next to you has left dirty clothes all over the floor and a mess in the kitchen, it's not going to make you really happy. And maybe there is that little bit of not necessarily intentional, but a little bit of no, I'm going to grab that protein and snatch it out of your hand before you can get on it, get to it, because I don't want you in my room anymore. I'm tired of your snoring. So for a more in-depth look at Top Chef Portland and life in that bubble, um, let's take a listen to my interview with Byron Gomez, who is the chef at 7908 in Aspen, Colorado, and he discusses uh, life there in a resort town and life in the bubble. So take a listen. Guilt is part of the fiber of my makeup. So we are chatting on a Thursday. If you're eliminated tonight, I'm never going to be able to live with myself. Oh, boy. All right. Well, you know, let's uh, let's tune in and find out then. <laughs> and, and I know all about the NDAs and everything like that. So I just it's yeah. like, oh, wow. Do I want to <laughs> talk to him on a Thursday or should I wait till Friday? <laughs> oh, man. Um, so you've achieved your success despite not having any formal training. Um, can you talk about the origins of your passion for food and your passion for cooking and your journey throughout the years to bringing you to where you are today as a, not only a, a very successful chef, but now a popular chef as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, it started, um, 
I guess uh, it was something just like normally, traditionally, uh, back in Costa Rica. Uh, my family would gather around every Sunday. Uh, specifically, I remember growing up on Sundays, um, My one of my uncles, he would drive like a minibus, uh, like for a living. And then on Sundays, he would like pick a whole bunch of my cousins and uncles and aunts and everyone. And about, I don't know, anywhere between 30 to 50 people used to gather at my grandma's house where I used to live back in Costa Rica. And the guys were like, get there on time and watch the soccer games, you know, uh, like the local soccer league. And the ladies would be in the kitchen just like yapping away and gossiping <laughs> around the dinner table. And I'll be playing with my little cousins, but there was always something that I was drawn to the kitchen uh, just to kind of like hang out and, and, and taste. You know, they will always give me stuff. Uh, yeah. I'm like, all right, here you go. Go play type of thing. It's like walking uh, around Costco. Exactly. That's exactly it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then, uh, but you don't feel as bad because in Costco, you keep on going twice. Then you're like, right. okay, you know, but as a kid, you're like, yeah, let me get some more. Yep. Um, and then uh, my parents moved to the U.S. in 1997. I was eight years old and uh, I was kind of like uh, stripped away from that, um, from that tradition. And, and my parents will host, uh, my parents are great cooks. They would host dinners uh, within the church group or with family members to try to still keep that bond that we had in Costa Rica with my family. I guess in there and also to kind of keep something familiar, you know, in the culture and, and for them to feel connected to, to what back home was in right. this new country. Uh, and yeah, so we would do that. And um, I always miss that. Even till today, there's still that gap somewhere in me that hasn't been fulfilled because of that memory um and i got to cooking uh it was a summer job pretty much uh, a family member a family friend of ours um he was the manager of a very famous restaurant called burger king so uh <laughs> I started yeah i i did the summer job i was front cashier didn't like it honestly didn't understand how people had such a hard time choosing a menu that's been up for the past 40 years and hasn't really changed much. Uh, and I was like, okay, I, I, maybe I'm not a people's person. I'm not, a, you know, so patient, you know, right. at 14, 15 years old. Um, and then they put me on drive-thru and that was another scenario, you know, kind of multitasking, doing math in your head, taking the orders through the mic, you know, filling up the drinks, making the change. So, and I was just like, okay, this is just way too much. Uh, and then a guy called in sick one day in the kitchen and they asked me to kind of help out with prep. And I remember putting this one tomato on this machine that you kind of pull it and you have like little blow. So you pull the tomato and it comes out and slices the other side. And as a 15 year old, I was like, this is pretty rad. Like this is really <laughs> cool. I get to use like grown up stuff, putting the patties on one side of the conveyor belt, they'll get grilled and then come out on the other side and then assemble the sandwiches. Um, that kind of sparked something within me. Um, so did that that summer. My second job was another very famous restaurant that um, TGI Fridays. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, um, kind of started from there. Then working a hotel, the Sheraton Hotel. This is all back in New York. I was going to say, this is all on the island? Yeah, this is all oh. on Long Island. Correct. And um, yeah, so kind of started going there. And then I was like, I think this is what I want to do for a living. Uh, plus my... Uh, my uh, immigration status didn't really allow me to go to get the proper uh, access to go to college or anything like that. Oh. So therefore, I was like, it's either a factory job or it's either cooking for the rest of my life 
And this is something that I've kind of done already for the past five years. I kind of like it. And let me just kind of stick to it. Um, so that's how it kind of came about the whole initial um, initiation of me kind of cooking and, and, and taking along this career. So doing it out of necessity and wanting to do it is a lot different than kicking ass at actually doing it. Exactly. And that's the thing. Like, I didn't know any different. Like when you you said kicking ass, I guess that's how life was always towards me. Now, we'll say was, I meant uh, it as a compliment. Like, yeah, no, no, for sure. For oh, sure. okay. <laughs> I, I, that was the mentality that, that I had very young, just because of all the opportunities that I had as a young immigrant uh, child in a, as a minority, I had to kick ass. I had to always be the best in whatever I wanted to do, just because um, I always had to prove myself to, to everyone, you know, to, to the system, to, to people. And I always live with this model, like, um, you, wherever you go, no matter, I mean, even now with Top Chef, you know, I try to talk to people and people try to work with me and, and wherever you go, I realize that you have to prove yourself to people, right? you know, because they don't know who you are or yes, your resume might be great or, or, or just all these accolades, but still they don't know you. Once you need to start proving yourself to you, the, the battle's halfway lost. You should know who you are. So I was like, you know, um, let me get into like more serious cooking and, and things like that. And that's when I reached, I decided to move away from Long Island, move with uh, $800 to an apartment in the Bronx. Uh, wow. We'll commute for an hour and a half from the Bronx um, to work and started in the Michelin world. And uh, pretty much that's how I um, really got involved with it. Did a one star with Daniel Bolu. I never thought I was going to get hired because I'm like, you know, uh, this guy has kids from all over the world with culinary pedigrees of like, you know, institutions that are like, you know, well known. And, and here I am, a kid from Long Island and trying to knock on this guy's door to try to get a job. But again, it, it was the whole survival fighting mentality. And 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 I worked for Daniel Bolu for five years. I worked at what, uh, six, uh, five of his seven restaurants in New York, all different concepts. So that was my culinary school. Uh, Daniel Bolu was my culinary school, which was really, really awesome. Uh, that's where I worked at my one Michelin star restaurant. Uh, after that, I went on to uh, work at a two-star Michelin called Atera. Um, pretty much started from scratch. So left the classical French situation, started from zero at a, at a Nordic Scandinavian restaurant, tasting menu, 18 people, 15 courses every mm -hmm. night. Uh, so it was just something kind of reprogramming myself at a two-star mission level, which is even harder. Yeah. And I guess the masochism in me didn't let me stop. <laughs> and I was like, well, I done one, I done two, let me shoot for three. And that's how I ended up at 11 Madison Park. When I was my time during 11 Madison Park, we got number one in the world by right. the 50 best. Um, I, it was, it was an honor for me to be part of that brigade for sure. Uh, and then I worked on myself the ranks to becoming uh, a sous chef on the fish line at 11 Madison Park. And uh, I guess that was like the one time that I was able to kind of stop, look back at everything that I've done in my career. And I was like, you know what? Like, I feel pretty proud of this. Like, uh, you know, I'm the first Costa Rican that worked at a three star Michelin that was a sous chef at the number one restaurant in the world. Um, all this stuff that I've done. And I'm like, well, it doesn't stop here. What else is next? <laughs> right. So that brings you to present day and 7908. Correct. For somebody that shows up in Aspen for the first time 
and wants to eat your cooking and decides to come to 7908, describe what their experience will be like. Uh, the experience of 7908 is, uh, it's, it's, it's a little bit, uh, it's like kind of funny because this is like the food that, that I want to do, but it's still, it's a resort town. So, you know, people are relaxing. People want their hamburgers and fried chicken and things <laughs> like that. So we do have that on the menu, but I'm able to kind of play around with like, let's say 80% of the menu. So it's a fine dining experience. So as soon as you walk in, um, the atmosphere is very sleek, uh, very, uh, modern, um you wouldn't think that there's a place like that in a it's technically like a, a nightclub right uh it turns into a nightclub type of thing but it's more of a fine dining establishment and okay. then uh, i mean the whole mantra of something i know it is like eat drink and dance so it's, it works perfectly in the winter because if you want to eat in aspen you you got to make reservations in the winter then you got to put on your coat then you got to go to the bar <laughs> then you got to put on your coat again and then you got to go to a club Right. So we kind of have the whole package type of thing uh, where people spend five, six hours at a time, oh, okay. uh, which is great. So, yeah, so it's the fine dining element of it. And it's everything is like a handoff. It's like a relay race. Um, you know, we start with that and then the uh, the cocktail program. That's one of the reasons why I actually decided to come to 7908, just because um, it's a very impressive cocktail program. It's almost like a speakeasy, very creative, uh, hmm. original presentation-wise. Uh, it's a really, really cool cocktail program. Uh, our bar director, Matt Corbin, has done an amazing job. Then uh, we have our general manager, uh, well, actually, master sommelier slash general manager, Jonathan Bullitt. Um. I mean, there's only like 263, 64 master sommeliers in the world, and we right. have one of them. So that's that's part of the package of the experience at 7908. Many of the contestants on Top Chef through the years go on to achieve a level of celebrity um, as a result of appearing on the show. As you get deeper into the season and you become personally more popular and more well-known, how are you balancing being a chef which when you set out to be a chef, you know, after your experiences early on, you didn't say to yourself, oh, I want to be a celebrity. You wanted yeah. to be a chef. So how right. are you balancing being a chef with the trappings of becoming a celebrity? And suddenly there's demand for you and your services nationally. Yeah. Um, I mean, right now I'm doing this whole uh, personal top chef kind of quote unquote tour. I've been on the road for the past month. I've cooked with Shoda, Nelson. I've seen Sasha, Dawn. I cook with Gabe, uh, Avashar, Sarah. So, so um, I've been, yeah, I've been on the West Coast for like the past month. Um, and it's, it's a little bit new and strange for me. Like when I walk down the street and people recognize me, like out of nowhere, uh, go out to a bar and be like, hey, here's a drink on us. You know, uh, we saw you on Top Chef. Um, but I don't let that get to me. You know, at the end of the day, I am a chef. Um, this is what I wanted to do. I work with many world-renowned chefs. So kind of like that whole exposure, I was a little bit used to uh, working in the Michelin world and cooking for celebrities and whatnot. Um, but like I said, at the end of the day, I am a chef. At the end of the day, there was prime examples like uh, Brooke. Uh, she runs her own restaurant and she's like a TV celebrity. And, yeah. and, and you, know, you have people like, Amar, same thing, uh, very successful. Um, and, you know, people take another route. Um, but I don't think, yes, we are entertaining and, and, and we've got into this new uh, microscope of like different kind of status. But at the end of the day, we're still chefs. 
you know, you have people like Kwame, who who's promoting his book, who now is getting made into a movie, who's been appearing on uh, Kelly and, and 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 Mario and 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 all this stuff. But at the end of the day, he he still cooks. Right. There's still a story. So, um, yes, to the demand is is great. Uh, it's. It's a little bit uh, overwhelming how many people want something from you, uh, but you just have to be wise. And at the end of the day, you have to stand firm on what you believe, on what you want to do, uh, whether it's entertaining, chef, whether you're a boyfriend, a father, uh, uh, whatever it is, you can't forget about who you are because it's easy to get wrapped up in the fame and everything. But that's not that doesn't define who I am. At least I speak for myself. I, I know what I want to do, and, and eventually I want to have my own restaurants. Uh, but in the meanwhile, just kind of ride the wave. So you mentioned some of your other chef, chefs on the show. I have to ask this question because everybody talks about it, and it's a, a fun question. What was it like being in the bubble with Shoda's Laugh and Jamie's Sound Effects? <laughs> so it's very real. It's, it's That's how they are. Uh, it's... It's funny because uh, you mean you you get put into this experience once in a lifetime experience yeah. um, as a newcomer to to the Top Chef family and and you're first trying to figure it out because you you know them in a way professionally you don't know them personally uh, but this time around I think it shows in this season that everyone's become so tight yeah. so you know uh, we all like each other you know and and, and that's, even Gabriel. That's, it's that's very i mean gabriel yes we still like gabriel i mean uh you know and that's what we come, need to come to understand that that's one le- big learning experience that i had with me was that not everybody's going to think the way that i think not everybody you know and and i experienced this with the challenges i experienced this the way people react the way how things were behind the scenes but everyone is his own character and that's the beauty part of it and that's what i think you know uh, i needed that because for the past year, I was so confined into my own little world in Aspen in the middle of a pandemic. Right. And eventually, we got to be like, okay, let's detox. Everybody's going through the same stuff. But guys, you guys are awesome. <laughs> and I love everyone's character. And I love everyone's personality. And, and, and that's the beauty of this Top Chef family, especially season 18. It's a very unique season. I mean, filming in the middle of pandemic and, and the challenges and, and they kept over 200 people COVID safe, right. you know, uh, which production could have stopped, come to a halt. And, and it didn't. So that's extremely impressive. They really took care of us. Uh, everything was awesome. So when I talked to Melissa not long ago, we talked <laughs> about we talked about the bubble and, you know, some of the special things about the bubble, but also some of the difficulties with the restrictions and the protocols and a little bit of the Mm -hmm. loneliness at the beginning when you're like locked in your room by yourself. How did being in the bubble and those protocols affect you if they affected you at all? Yeah. I mean, when you first get there, uh, you know, you're in your room for your quarantine for 10 days and you place your food orders. uh, But the options are not fast because we're in the middle of a pandemic and the middle of wildfires. Right. Uh, there are strikes in Portland at this time of year and nothing is really open and whatever handful of options are open, it's only takeout. Um, so that was very shocking. That was like, wow, OK, th- th- this is real. Uh, I'm not in Aspen anymore. This is not Kansas anymore. It's a right. thing. 
um so yeah so and then like they will leave the producers will leave like the food at your doorstep and they will knock and then they will leave uh so you're like okay i feel like i'm a little bit in jail type yeah. thing um but i understood why they did it you know i understood why they did it and i mean and it showed like again like i said uh, there was a tight schedule and if somebody got sick everyone had to stop and you know and, and it, was, it was just insane the amount of back production that goes on with this show uh and then they kept everybody safe so that part was like um deal it was a little bit hard but it it definitely got hard as the season progressed like right before uh, you know you start filming they, they give you all these protocols and all this stuff and that's when things get real you know yeah. um it's 16 18 hour days you come back to the hotel and the we had one floor only for the chefs. No one was allowed in there. Oh, okay. And, uh, yeah, like not even a production person was allowed to this floor. Um, it was only the chefs and the people that took care of us. Um, so you go there and you're finally yourself. You're off camera. You start drinking a beer. Next thing you know, it's like one o'clock in the morning. Sorry. Next thing you know, it's like one o'clock in the morning. And then you try to go to bed, but you're marinating in your head. Yeah. You're thinking, did I make the right purchases? Oh man, did I miss this from Whole Foods? Or should I do this recipe? Or what are the steps for tomorrow's day? The challenge. Next thing you know, it's three o'clock in the morning, and you got to be up by five, five thirty, right? Because you're getting uh, tested up your nose with COVID, and and it's just like it, and that wears out. The longer you go in the season, the more exhausting you are. Since you were uh, said you were uh, you were kind enough to answer some questions from fans um, from online, I'm going to read you a few of those. A fan named Amber asks, "What is a favorite meal that you've had that someone else has cooked?" A favorite meal, my first Michelin starter meal uh, that I would never forget was at Gramercy Tavern, um, and it was pretty much a sunchuk volute with a sear scallop. And caviar on top. That was the first time I ever had caviar in my life. And sun choke. And it was just like a, such a velvety, uh, sweet, salty, poppy feeling to the whole bite that I was like, okay, I don't think, I mean, it's been like more than 10 years and I still remember this bite. So I think that's the one memorable uh, bite or meal that I've had in my life that I will never forget. Very good. Um, I'll tie the next two fan questions into one because they were okay. similar. They overlapped. Aaron, who is from Costa Rica, said that oh. she had, I, and I may mis mispronounce this word, so if I do, jump uh -huh. me. She adores Gallo Pinto. Yeah, Gallo Pinto. And asked what your favorite version is, while Thomas asked what your favorite dish to eat and cook from your heritage is. Okay, so my favorite dish to eat and cook from my heritage uh, will have to be, uh, it's a root vegetable. It's called uh, arracache. So it's pretty much a root vegetable, almost like a yuca. Oh, okay. It's like a cassava uh, root. Um, and then you boil it. Um, then you, you grind it by hand. And then you stew it down with like shredded meat, shredded beef. Oh. And, and then you eat it like in a taco. You eat it with like homemade tortillas. So this so is sort of a barbacoa type? Kind of, sort of. It's more like a, like a, like a chow chow oh, type okay. of looking thing. 
Yeah, but it's like with grounded, like this cassava root looking aracache with like shredded beef uh, and eating tacos. So that was something that's very memorable to me in Costa Rica. Um, and the best way to eat Cayo Pinto, honestly, is, is literally rice and beans mixed up that we eat for breakfast or any time of the day. What I like to do is instead of using uh, kind of like stir fry it, but with duck fat or uh, pork fat. Uh, oh. it just, yeah, it just gives it a little bit more flavor. Finish it with a little dash of lime juice and chopped cilantro and stir it up and then just serve it. It's uh, it's yeah, it's, it's mind blowing. <laughs> Okay, I'm sure she'll appreciate that because it'll be something I'm sure she'll try. Um, a fan named Lisa asks how your Top Chef experience has affected you and your food. So as you get ready to start your new season in Aspen at 7908, will anything change in how you approach being in the kitchen, the menu, anything? Have you been affected yeah. by the show? Um, the one thing that I always say, and, and that's very true, is that... When after the first few challenges, you know, we get to know each other and what our cooking styles is and who we are. And I realized that there was a big presence of people knowing their background, knowing who they were. I mean, you have Gabe who cooks authentic, like Yucatanian cuisine. You have Maria. She's like a, a mom that cooks these huge meals, but like from the soul that are from like Sonora. Uh, you have Shota, you know, Japanese, you have Jamie, Vietnamese, and I'm like, what do I fit here? Uh, you know, I'm I'm from Costa Rica, but I haven't been there since '97. I'm a DACA recipient, which the the, the government calls me a dreamer. Right. I was raised in the U.S., but I'm not really from the U.S. I've done classically French trained cuisine, Nordic. Uh, I like Southeast Asian cuisine but I want to go back to my Latin roots. And all of those things kind of in a bubble were with me every day during the show. Um, and in, I realized that I, it's okay to be all those things. Right. It's okay to not be put into that box. I'm not saying Shoda's cooking or Gabe's cooking is in a box. It's not. Right. But it's okay being who I am because at the end of the day, this is what my America is. Right. And there's nothing wrong with that. No. Uh, so that was one thing that I always struggled with my, in my life. And with Top Chef, I was like, you know what? It's okay to be that. So, so it, that, it actually served a purpose for you. Oh, it did. It did. It kind of like set me free in a way. Um, and then that reflects on my menu at 708. Um, you know, I have influence. I have a pasta dish, uh, a la marxiciana with like, uh, it's like agnolotti filled with uh tarragon, rosemary, and goat cheese with a a la matriciana sauce. So that's a Sicilian dish. Then I have a, what is it? A crudo, salmon crudo with puffed quinoa, a turmeric and tamarind curry, and jicama. So I'm taking influence from Japan. I'm taking influence from Southeast Asia, Italy, Peru, and I'm just blending everything in my menu. And, and, And it makes sense. I mean, some of the best sellers... And people love the flavors. People love the presentations. Right. So um, that's what I'm doing at 708 because it's, it's a different experience for, for the people that come to Aspen and, and want to experience something different. A fan named Wendy wanted to know if the contestants get any time at all uh, to prepare for or plan before the quickfire challenge. Uh, no, not really. Uh, the, it's, it's real. So nothing is like scripted. 
nothing is staged. The only staging is the lights and the cameras <laughs> where they have to be when they start filming. Uh, I mean, this is situations where a camera is, 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 is running through the kitchen with you, behind you, and there's right. a producer, and everything is real. So there are some days that the strategy is like, do I go for the pantry or do I go for the pots and pans? Right. What do I go first? And then bring it back, and then I go back, and then you run the risk of that not being there. Right. Uh, so it's a lot of uh, on-the-fly thinking and, and, and pivoting and making choices that you then maybe regret. Or you have to swallow that pill and be like, I'm going to own this. Um, it, it's very real. The stress is very real. Chef, thank you so much for being so generous with your oh, time no today. And thank you so much for um, being willing to answer questions from people in the Facebook group. The, Amazing. That was pretty in-depth. And I hope people enjoyed it. Um, I also love the fact that, uh, as you heard, I arranged with Byron ahead of time to take some questions from uh, passionate uh, Top Chef uh, viewers from the Top Chef fans Facebook group. And I thought it was just outstanding that he was not only willing to take some questions from, from people that shared them with me in that group, but um, enthusiastic about doing so. And I think that added a, a nice little uh, twist to the interview. We have on our next episode, and yes, this is called The Tease, um, your interview with Wolfgang Puck, the original celebrity chef, um, in conjunction with the new Disney Plus documentary called Wolfgang that I think everybody should watch. It was wonderful. And we'll go into greater detail about it next episode. And the uh, gentleman who made that documentary, David Gelb, um, also on that episode next week is uh, my interview with HGTV star Hillary Farr who is one of the stars of the popular show, Love It or List It. And while she is not a chef and you know, doesn't own a restaurant, not in the food world, I thought it would be a really interesting interview to talk to somebody who's on the leading edge of trends in kitchens, kitchen design, um, where we've been, where we're going. And as it turns out, she was fabulous. And the interview was just so much fun. So um, I really am looking forward to your chats with uh, Wolfgang and David next week, my chat with Hillary. I think people will really enjoy them. I, I look forward to hearing, you know, your chat because I've watched loved it, love it or list it for a long time and, and wish I had that design sense. Um, and I will say that chatting with Wolfgang Puck is, was an absolute delight. He is as personable and engaging um, when one-on-one -on -one as he, as it's, as he seems when you see him on TV. So, um, and I now know how to make his mushroom risotto. So if anyone wants the recipe, let me know. I, I figured it out and it's really, really yummy. See, and I was going to do a deeper dive into that when we uh, reconvene too. So uh, that's the perfect way to uh, lead us out now and leave people hanging for when we get back together. Cause I do want to hear about, you doing that live cooking session with him and how your mushroom risotto turned out. So tuned in to our next episode of, excuse me, may I have some more. Uh, Christine, thanks for the fun. Cheers, Brad. Until next week. And uh, as we end this discussion, it's only an hour, 20 minutes until you can open your uh, drink du jour for tonight, five o'clock. Chin chin. <laughs> Take care. Bye-bye.
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.